Well, um, during my junior year of high school, I had this uh, faith crisis. And it wasn't the kind of crisis that you might think about. It wasn't the crisis where I was asking all kinds of questions, um, like theological type questions, those kinds of things. But my crisis was about questioning my own faith. And uh, so I wasn't asking questions like, how do I know Christianity is true or real? Um, I was asking, how do I know my faith is real? That was a question that I had. And this all started because there was this man in my church who was this leader. He was like this uh, class teacher. I think he was a deacon in the church as well. And uh, he stood up one Sunday in front of our entire congregation, and he told us that he had just become a real Christian the week before. And this guy had been teaching in our church for probably over 20 years, and um, and I don't know what was really happening in his heart, in his mind, in his soul. I, I can't explain all that. I didn't have some discussion with him about that afterwards. Um, but this, this whole thing kind of rocked our church. We thought, I mean, lots of people were asking the question, well, if this guy, like, maybe thought he was a Christian, but maybe he really wasn't a Christian, and now he's suddenly a real Christian, then um, how do we know our faith is real? And I was a 17-year-old student in high school and was really wrestling with this question for about a week or so. And I, I would be um, in school just thinking about obsessing over this question. How can I be confident that my own faith is a real, true, and authentic faith? And uh, I'll share more about that as we go through the series. But last week, we finished our series, The Imperfect Disciple, and we are following it up this week with a, a four-week series um, called How Do I Know I'm Saved? And it was a question that maybe, maybe you've wrestled with. I know many probably have wrestled with that question. And so, um, so how do we handle doubts about our own salvation? It's really normal for true Christians. So to give you some comfort, it's actually normal for true Christians to have some doubt about their salvation. But not everyone doubts for the same reasons. So here's some, some ways people can doubt sometimes. Sometimes there are doubts because of unrepentant sin. Like, we're, we're living and walking in sin, so we start to feel this sense of, like, am I truly a believer? Because I, I really love this particular sin or those particular sins a lot more than I love following Jesus right now. And so that can cause some doubt. Sometimes we just don't sense his presence like we maybe once did. I hear this from a lot of students that will say to me, you know, I just don't sense God's presence with me like I once did when I first became a Christian. And so you might start to question and doubt your salvation or sometimes Satan, Satan's really good at getting us to doubt. That's his, I think that's part of his, his purpose and, and, and role is he wants to plant doubt in our minds and hearts. So how do we handle doubts about salvation? So we're going to look at some causes of doubt. There's going to be four causes that we can look at this morning that can cause us to doubt and question our faith. The first is spiritual immaturity. So young Christians tend to have more doubts about their faith. Um, they have less knowledge of God and his word. And so here's the good news. As your understanding of scripture begins to grow and develop and deepen, I think it, it starts to change um, your assurance. Your assurance is going to grow as your understanding of scripture grows. As you understand the gospel more deeply. So if you were in the, how many of you guys were in the main service this morning? Anybody make it the main service at 915? All three of you, great. Um, but the guy speaking up there in, uh, in the service, 
uh, he taught the very first class I ever had at Dallas Seminary. And it's really amazing. I grew up in the church my entire life and, uh, and then served in a church for a number of years. And then I went to seminary. And it was so cool walking into some of those classes and just understanding the depths of the gospel. I would leave sometimes driving back to Arlington where I lived just with like tears in my eyes at what I just heard that day on the campus. And so it's, 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 it's listen, and he would even tell you, Mark Bailey would tell you that as a, I don't know how old he is, but he's, he's obviously up there. And, uh, but someone like him, you, you study and you grow and you learn and it just never stops. Like the, the depths of scripture, that's, that's what that's about. And you begin to understand the gospel. Your understanding of the gospel grows, grows more, more deeply as you grow in Christ. And you understand your true position in Christ. And that is a lifelong journey you get to be a part of. And so that's a blessing. So just understand this, that at, right now where you're at, like many of you guys are, let's just say it, you're spiritually immature right now. But the good news is you get to grow. And so don't be disenfranchised by that immaturity that you might sense in yourself right now, but you get to grow the rest of your life, and that's a blessing. But that can also be a cause of doubt, this immaturity spiritually. And then secondly, sensitivity to sin. New believers sometimes doubt because they misunderstand their new sensitivity to sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul writes, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul is talking about the God of this world um, blinding the minds of unbelievers. So there's a reason why when, when you become a Christian, and maybe you're the only person in your friend group or your family who's a believer, and you're thinking to yourself, well, how can they not see what I now see? Well, the scriptures tell us that before someone comes to know Christ, they're blind spiritually. They literally cannot see the truth that you now see. And we don't pump ourselves up and say, well, you know, look how great I am because I can now see it because we know it's the Holy Spirit that illuminated things in your heart in such a way that allowed you to come to see it. So we don't get prideful about that. But something else that happens when you become a Christian is you not only see the gospel and see Jesus for who he is, but you begin to see your own sin in ways that you never saw before. And it can actually be a depressing thing at first, right? Because remember, when, when Paul is writing this, what happened at Paul's conversion? Well, he saw the risen Christ, and he was, he was blinded for a few days, and then the scales fall off of his eyes and then he can see, and this is really what happens to us spiritually. And most of the time, we think about it in the sense of, well, yeah, I can see Jesus for who he is. But what the other side of that coin, though, is that you now see your sin. And, and you will continue to see your sin throughout your life. And so we're, we're blinded. We can see. We can see the gospel. We can see Jesus for who he is. We can also see our sin, and we see sins that we never saw before. Remember the last series that we did, we kept on saying to you throughout the discipleship series that the more you grow, the less holy you will feel. And this is why you've got to keep leaning into the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ 
throughout your life. You're never going to, the, the point of spiritual growth should never be like, well, I've arrived to this new plateau, and now I've arrived to this new, that's not the point of spiritual growth. The reality of growth is that you're going to continue to wrestle and struggle with this. The more you grow, the less holy you're going to feel, but it's a chance for you to lean further into the gospel and further into his grace and mercy throughout your life. So this new spiritual sensitivity to sin that you, that you feel whenever you first become a Christian, this is not a bad thing. It's, it's a really good thing, and it's actually confirmation that you're a true Christian because you've got the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin in your life. You know, we can see some sin before we come to know Christ. If you talk to any person just on the street that's not even a believer and you use the word sin or whatever you want to call it, like they're going to say, yeah, I make all kinds of um, bad decisions or they might call them mistakes or errors or, or sins. Like when I was in college and also when I was back in high school and I was trying to share my faith with, with people I worked with, um, those guys and those girls had no problem saying that they do like bad stuff. Like they, they would be like, yeah, totally all the time. They would own it. They would admit it. That wasn't a problem. But when you're, when you're not yet a Christian, you typically see sin as just actions. But once you become a Christian, you begin to see sin not just as actions, but also as attitudes and thoughts and things that are deeper than how you may have seen sin to begin with. If you came to know Christ, or claimed to come to know Christ, and you didn't really care about your sin, like you weren't wrestling and struggling with this new sensitivity to sin, well, then we should be worried. Like, that's when you should be worried, is if you're just like, if you don't even think about it, there's, no, there's nothing kind of pricking your conscience about those things, then that is cause for worry and concern. But when you become a Christian, you're going to have this new sensitivity to sin, and at first, it can feel discouraging, but it's actually a good sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, making you aware of how unholy we are before God. And then the third cause of doubt is comparison with others. When you first become a Christian, or even if you've become, been a Christian for a long, long time and you've not been a part of the church really at all, or maybe it's recent for you, and you walk into a church, it can be really, really discouraging because you might see people that at least to you they appear way more mature than you are and, and what you may not realize is that well I mean everyone kind of puts on we call it the Sunday face the Sunday persona I mean that's really what you're seeing most of the time but the reality is if you're a new Christian there will be a lot of people that are a lot more mature than you in their faith and that's okay and so you begin to play the comparison game. Like when I, when I hear that person pray or that person talk in a discussion group, like they just seem like so much better than me. And, and so you struggle and you start to think, well, how, how can I even call myself a Christian if I, I can't compare to them? I think about how I just kind of rejoined the, the, the gym recently because I've been out of it for a year. That's been a good uh, thing to get back into. And you can always see uh, the people that come in and they're doing like the tour, like they're brand new to the gym. 
And, um, and there's always, like, the bodybuilder over in the corner who's just, like, ripped. And these people come in, and they're kind of, like, being shown around by the guide or whatever. And they're like, okay, over here's the dumbbells. Over here's the machines. And you can see the look at the guy. They're just like, oh, man. Like, you can just see, like, the surprise on their face at some of the people that work out in there. And the reality is that guy's been in there for, like, 25 years. He's way ahead of where that person is and where I am. And so it can be intimidating, and the same can happen in the church. If you think about a fruit tree, a young tree bears little fruit, but the deeper its roots go, the more fruitful it becomes. So instead of focusing on what you are not right now, I want you to ask this question. Focus on how far you have come. Ask yourself the question, like where, even if you were saved at like four or five years old, ask yourself the question, where, might, where would my life be right now if I didn't know Christ? Like, think of family members or relatives that are about your age right now that aren't following Jesus and what their life looks like right now. And think about what your life would look like if you weren't following Jesus. Think about how far you've come, how far he has brought you, not just comparing yourself to other people. And so we shouldn't lose assurance based on comparison but there's also another side to this, because um, if you're a part of a youth group for a long period of time, you're going to hear this thought. Yeah, they're, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. They say they believe these things, but they don't really live it out. You will hear that said about people in this room. And, and so when you surrender early, lost my place in my notes here, hang on. So the other side of this is that when you're, you're going to hear those kinds of statements, well, sometimes what you're seeing is just immaturity. I mean, we're all, most of you guys are in this 14 to 18 age range. And then new believers come in here, and maybe they're intimidated by the maturity they see. Maybe they're disenfranchised by the immaturity that they see. And they say, oh, it's just a bunch of hypocrites. And a case can be made for that, right? We're not perfect by any means. But the reality is what you might be seeing is not hypocrites, but you might just be seeing just immature Christians struggling to figure this thing out. That might be what you're seeing when you come in here. And so this comparison game. And then fourthly, there is uh, the childhood conversion. If someone surrenders to Christ at an early age, they can later have major doubts about their faith. And these doubts can come in two ways. The first is doubting the truthfulness of Christianity. You know, you seeing it as, as a fairy tale. Like I think about when you, when you come to know Christ as a four, five, six-year-old, and then later on in your teenage years, you begin to be confronted with questions, and, and a friend asks you a question, well, what about this? What about that? And you're thinking, well, yeah, no one asked me that when I was four. I didn't, like, weigh everything out when I was four or five intellectually. I wasn't thinking that way when I was that age. And so now you're 14, 15, 16, and you're, you're hearing questions at school. You're hearing questions from teachers, questions from friends that you can't have, you don't have answers to right now. So that can happen for sure, and you begin to doubt the truthfulness of Christianity. But then also... 
Secondly, you may simply doubt the realness of your own faith. And this was my struggle when I was in high school. How do I know my faith is real? How genuine could this be at the age of four or five years old? I like what uh, writer Donald Whitney says. He says, when your Christian experience is basically the only life you have ever known, sometimes you wonder if the only thing you have known is the real thing. So I'll be honest with you. I think it's actually really healthy to have these concerns. I would be more concerned about someone who said, nah, I'm, I'm good. I, I prayed this prayer at age seven, like at Pine Cove. I'm good. And yet that person hasn't thought about it since then. They haven't had at least some question or some doubt about how do I know this thing is real? How do I know my own faith is real? I'd worry more about that person, the person that just, they put all their stock in this one little experience at a summer camp and they're like, no, I, I prayed that prayer. I'm good. I'd be more concerned about that person and their salvation than the person who's genuinely struggling and saying, how do I know I'm saved? Like, how do I really know? Because the person who is asking that question, they're at least wrestling with it and they understand the weight and the gravity of what's at stake here. So it's not, it's not totally wrong to be concerned about it. However, I will tell you that I think chronic doubt, like just obsessive doubt about your salvation, I think should not be the norm for a Christian. And we should not live in unrelenting chronic doubt. When we lack assurance, and we shouldn't totally ignore that. We have to get at the heart of what's causing, what might be causing that doubt. I think if we don't do this, we're going to, we're going to lack joy, and we're going to live in spiritual misery. So here's the next question I want to ask you. Is assurance of salvation possible? The short answer is yes. I do think it's possible. And we should not accept chronic doubt as just the, the way things are, the way things have to be, because God has given us his word and his spirit to help, I think, fortify our assurance. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Paul says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So as we battle doubt, the weapons that God has given us are his word. He's given us the gift of faith, the power of the spirit living within you and dwelling you. And there are many strongholds. You know what they are. There's all kinds of sin strongholds we get wrapped up in. But one of those strongholds can be, can be doubt about our salvation. And this is not something that we have to, we don't have to live under this dark cloud of this shadow of doubt throughout our lives. We don't have to live under that. This next statement I think is important. It says, assurance is not only possible for Christians, but normal. I think it should be normal for Christians to have this assurance of salvation. What do we mean by assurance? Well, it's this confidence that the death of Christ for you is enough. It's confidence that God loves you. It's confidence that you're going to spend eternity with him. You know, there are some people, even some Christian traditions, that, that teach it's not normal to have this assurance. I disagree with them. 
And I think it goes against Scripture itself. Because you look over in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, where it says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I think we can look in God's Word and see that God wants us to have this confidence. God wants us to have this assurance of our salvation when you read verses like that. And notice the confidence that Paul has. Paul's using family language. He says, children of God. You know, my kids don't ever have to doubt that they're my children. Do we have conflict and tension? Oh, yeah. We do all the time, right? But they don't have to doubt their position. I would even say that because of the confidence that they feel in that position can be why we have conflict sometimes. They know their position is secure. And I think God wants us to know that our position with him is secure as a child of God if you're a believer. There's also, there's, there is a present tense experiential confidence that you see in Romans 8.16 that Christians should have. You know, we started the book of 1 John on Wednesday. And we'll continue that through the end of this semester. And we did this on purpose to kind of tie in like Wednesday into Sunday because 1 John is all about this topic of how do I know I really have a true faith. And so in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, it says, John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So it seems pretty clear to me that we... We should have assurance. I don't believe that God wants us living in fear our entire lives. However, this next statement will seem opposed to what I just said to you. So here's the next statement. It is possible for non-Christians to have a false assurance of salvation. So many Christians doubt their salvation when they shouldn't. But many don't doubt their salvation who should. And in Matthew chapter 7, remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, in verses 22 to 23, Jesus said, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And you might be asking the question, well, Dave, why are you giving us that verse? Many of us are struggling already with this assurance of salvation, so why are you giving us that verse? Well, here's why, because I don't think the Bible's role or anyone's role should be to give someone who's not a Christian like a false sense of assurance. That's the, that's the worst thing that I could possibly do. And so when you look at Matthew 7, what are the people here What are they basing their assurance on? Well, they're basing them on their works. When you read the passage, everything they're saying is, look at what we did. We did these things in your name. How can you say that we don't don't know you? And so maybe for you it might be, of course I'm saved. I went on a mission trip or I did impact or I serve in the kids' ministry a great question to ask yourself is if, if God were to say to you, why should I let you into my presence for eternity? The question, the answer to that question 
for you would reveal a lot about your heart. If, you're, if your answer is, well, because I did fill in the blank, well, that, that shows you're putting your confidence in your own works, your own deeds, and not in the finished work for you on the cross. So we don't place our confidence in what we have done, but on what he has done on the cross for us. And so some have this false assurance based on what they have done, but some have a false assurance based on what they haven't done. I think of the parable that Jesus told about the Pharisee in Luke chapter 11, verse 18. The Pharisee was praying and and saying things like, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners and unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector right here. You see, everyone can find someone worse than them, right? I don't know why murder is thrown out like, well, I haven't killed anybody. Like, I haven't done anything that bad. Or people want to compare themselves to Hitler, like, that's the best you can do. (laughs) Like, I'm not like Hitler. Like, well, uh, we hope not, right? And so everyone looks good compared to somebody. So, so false assurance has this way of, of breeding pride in us. We saw it with this parable that Jesus tells about the Pharisee who's thanking God he's not like other people. I read this story this past week about, you may recognize, anybody know who this next guy is? This picture, put the picture on the screen. You guys know who that is? You all know who that is? David Koresh. Never trust a guy with a mullet. That's just a different life lesson. But um, this is David Crash. He was a cult leader in Waco. Before I moved to Texas, if I heard the word, the name Waco, this is all I thought about where I'm from. I didn't, I didn't know anything about Waco except for the Branch Davidian compound back in the mid-'90s. And, uh, but he was a cult leader, and he was so egotistical about his assurance that he once signed a letter Yahweh Koresh, like putting himself in this position of God, taking God's name as his own name. And so when someone has false assurance, it actually leads to pride. It leads to things like pride. But true assurance leads to humility, not pride. True assurance leads to humility, not pride. So here's the question for you. Do you believe that you should have assurance? The Bible says that you should if you're a believer. And if you don't have it, then it's something that you should pursue. I love what uh, Charles Spurgeon says. I'm going to read a quote by Charles Spurgeon. He speaks different than how we speak today. So just read this with me, and I hope this is meaningful to you. He says, I can understand a man doubting whether he is truly converted or not, but I cannot understand his apathy in resting quiet until he has solved the riddle. How can you sleep? How can you give sleep to your eyelids until you have known it? Not know whether you're in Christ or not, perhaps on the brink of hell, perhaps with nothing more to keep you out of hell than the breath that is in your nostrils, or the circulating drop of blood which any one of 10,000 haps or mishaps may stop, then your career is closed, your life story ended. I entreat you, I beseech you, shake off this sluggishness And ask the Lord to say unto your soul tonight, I am your salvation. He is able and he is willing. And he will do it for you when you eagerly seek it from him. 
I'm going to pray for you, and you guys are going to have some discussion here in a minute. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for how it shows us and gives us comfort to those that need comfort from your word today, but also how it gives us conviction for those that need conviction. God, we pray that as we go through this next uh, few week series that, God, you would show us from your word the kind of confidence you want us to have in our salvation. The assurance and confidence that leads to people seeing themselves as your children, like in your family. But also, we also pray for, for anyone here that is, that is truly questioning and doubting, and, and maybe they should be, because they're not your child. I pray, God, that they would turn to you in repentance, understanding that, that, that be, being a Christian is not about making themselves better, but looking at your finished work on the cross and placing their faith and trust in that and in that alone and not anything that they've done to earn that. God, I pray for their discussions this morning, that they would be fruitful and, uh, and powerful this morning. Father, we pray this in your name. Amen. Guys, I've got... Um,